this fall, we're reading and reflecting on the story of Abram and Sarai found in the book of Genesis. The Lord called to them. It's time to leave, God said. And leaving their familiar, the, their home, their hometown, they turned and they went where they did not know. They followed God's call. We've seen that that hasn't been easy. They've had struggles and trials along the way, and God has consistently showed up to reassert the promise, to uh, confirm it, even with the covenant. That's what we looked at last week. And uh, we've reached uh, chapter 16, and here we find another test, or maybe not a test, but we see this very human family struggling with the promise, not knowing how to move forward and we'll see what happens and what God does in response. Genesis chapter 16, hear God's word to you today. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. After Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, took his, uh, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was eighty-six years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, the dysfunctional nature of Abram's household is in full view in this chapter, but also in view in this chapter is the faithfulness of God. But before we get into looking at both the dysfunction and the faithfulness, 
I think we need to take a moment to empathize with Abram and Sarai. Ever since heeding God's call, they have faced really nothing but trouble. Famine, a harrowing trip to Egypt, a war with neighboring kings to rescue Lot. And to top it all off, and perhaps most painful of all, Abram and Sarai are still without an heir. God had promised them that he was going to make them into a great nation. In fact, he keeps reasserting that promise, but so far their union has not produced a single descendant, and the clock keeps ticking. The text tells us that Abram is 86 when Ishmael is born. Sarai is probably in her 70s. Now there's some debate about how years were calculated in Abram's day, but however it is calculated, everyone agrees that these two are at least well into their middle age. I'm sure they've tried everything, went to all the local doctors, took the tinctures and concoctions mixed by the well-meaning old ladies at the well, but nothing. There's pain here. There's frustration here. Feelings of loss, desperation. This is happening on a human level, but it's also happening on a theological level or uh, in their relationship with God. Unwanted barrenness is heartbreaking, uh, but Sarai and Abram's barrenness is also heart-wrenching in that God has called to them and said, this is going to happen for you, and so far it hasn't. And what will happen, what will become of God's plan if Sarai hits menopause, if she hasn't hit it already? Now, ancient couples, couples didn't have the technology that we have today, but there were some tried and true methods of, of obtaining an heir if one couldn't be had naturally. One of them involved the use of a maidservant as a surrogate. Enter Hagar. Hagar is an Egyptian living in Abram's camp. She's Sarai's maidservant, which meant that she managed Sarai's affairs on Sarai's, Sarai's behalf. And being Sarai's maidservant also meant that Hagar was eligible to be a surrogate mother for her mistress. Now, we might have questions about this practice and think of it as a horrible thing, but you have to know that getting tapped on the shoulder to be a surrogate mother was, in some ways, a great honor. In fact, it would have been a giant step up for Hagar socially, for according to the rules of Hammurabi, an ancient code of law, surrogate mothers needed to be treated like secondary wives, and they could not be sold off or discarded once the baby was born. Now, the narrator makes no comment on this practice, whether it's good or bad. There's, it's, the narrator is indifferent. It's assumed to be a legitimate way of producing an heir. The problem in Genesis 16 is not that Sarai gives Hagar to Abraham, the problem is that she's taking matters into her own hands. Sarai doesn't want to wait anymore. If God won't give Abram a son on her time, on her terms, then she's going to make it happen. And why not, right? Is it not the case that the Lord works through practical means as much as he works through miraculous means? 
Why couldn't he make a great nation through a surrogate? I'm thinking of that commonly told parable of the man sitting on his roof as the floodwaters rise. In prayer, he asks, asks to be rescued, and the Lord says that he will deliver him. Moments later, a man paddles by in a canoe, but the man on the roof waves him on. God's going to save me, he says. A few minutes later, a motorboat comes by the house, but the man on the roof waves him on again. God's going to save me, he says. And then finally, a helicopter shows up. But yet again, the man waves the helicopter on. God's going to save me, he yells. Well, eventually the house breaks apart and the floodwaters take the man down. And when he gets to heaven, he asks God, You said you were going to rescue me. And God replies, I sent you a canoe. I sent you a boat. I sent you a helicopter. Why didn't you take them? So back to Sarai. Why not use Hagar to produce an heir? Maybe she is God's provision. Now, while it's certainly the case that God often invites us to utilize the means available to us, notice that neither Sarai nor Abram consult the Lord first. Like they did in Egypt, so they do now. They are going out on their own. In addition, this creative innovation does not harmonize with God's promise. God has promised them a son of their own flesh, and their call right now is not to innovate, but to wait and to watch. But waiting is hard, too hard. And so it happens. Sarai gives Hagar to Abram, like Eve gave the apple to Adam, and Adam takes and, and Abram takes and eats without protest, making Hagar his second wife. And this is where things start to get a little dysfunctional. Hagar conceives, and her newfound status goes to her head. Whereas once she was under Sarai, now she's more of an equal in the household. Also, she's young, she's beautiful, and she's aglow with new life. You can imagine Sarai giving Hagar instructions just like she used to, and Hagar rolling her eyes as she shows off her cute little baby bump. This new dynamic, it drives Sarai crazy, and she goes to Abram and blames him. You are responsible for this, she says. This servant of mine now despises me. But Abraham doesn't want to touch the situation with the ten-foot pole, and so he washes his hands and he says, Your servant is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think is best. And to this, I want to say to Sarai, Wait, this isn't all Abram's fault. And to Abram, I want to say, Hey man, that servant of Sarai's happens to have a name. It's Hagar. She also happens to be your second wife now. And also, she's carrying your baby. It's time to man up and take some responsibility. But that's not what Abram does. Just as Adam shirked responsibility in the garden, so Abram shirks responsibility in the home. And the result is that Sarai uses her power to mistreat Hagar, and Hagar uses her power to run. It's a sad state of affairs, 
its brokenness all around. There is now great distance between all of the characters in our story. Like Adam and Eve hid from God and one another, so it is with Hagar, Abram, and Sarai. But as was the case in the garden, it's into this mess that God shows up to make the best of this broken situation. God takes responsibility. It's powerful and beautiful, I think, that God goes to Hagar first, or at least that's what's recorded in the text. Hagar is the outsider in every sense of the word. She's the Egyptian servant girl. She's not part of God's family of promise, but is kind of along for the ride. But as Psalm 68 declares, the Lord is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. So perhaps it's not surprising that he goes to Hagar first. Hagar is the most vulnerable, and our Father in heaven sees her. To Hagar, he sends an envoy, a, a messenger, and that messenger calls Hagar by name. Sarai and Abram refer to her as a servant. The messenger of God sees a human being. Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, she says. It's time to go back, says the messenger. Return and submit yourself to Sarai's service. We like the first part of what the messenger says calling Hagar by name, dignifying her in that way. But the second part's a little troubling. Return and submit. Is that really what a maidservant, uh, what a mistreated servant girl should do? But then again, Hagar is no longer simply a maidservant in Abram's house. She's Abram's second wife, and she's carrying Abram's baby. And it's also true that when she is with Abram and Sarai, she is within God's protection. God has promised to bless this family and to curse whichever, whoever tries to curse them. Alone in the desert, Hagar, neither Hagar nor the baby will survive. Hagar gets her own kind of promise from the messenger after uh, being told to return. The messenger tells her that the baby growing in her belly is a son. He tells her that he will be called Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. The son will not carry the promise forward, but God will grow uh, a great nation from this son too. And this son will live a vibrant, if unrestful, and unruly life. To the messenger's presence and word, Hagar responds with gratitude. She feels seen. All her life she's been passed off and passed around. No one has ever pursued her. Rarely has she been called by her name. And so Hagar gives the Lord a name in response. And she is the only one in the Old Testament to do so. You are the God who sees me, she says. I have been seen. You are the God that sees me. So bolstered by this encounter, Hagar returns to Abram and Sarai's camp. 
and she re-engages her place in the home. The text doesn't tell us how God uh, engaged with Abram and Sarai, and so we are left to wonder how things unfold from here. Do they all try to make the best of things as God has tried to make the best of things? We don't know. Whatever the case, this certainly is another learning experience in the life of faith for all three of these characters. Hagar learns that she is seen. Sarai learns the dangers of taking matters into her own hands. And Abraham learns responsibility. When Ishmael is born, he is there to name him. We'll pick up the story from here after Thanksgiving. But before concluding, let me make two, two application points. The first is that this story warns us about something dangerous, the danger of something called synergism. I actually haven't heard this word before, but I was reading. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. So synergism is a fancy-sounding theological word, and according to Bruce Waukee, it means this, to attempt to independently help God accomplish his purposes. This is what Sarai does and what Abram is complicit in. They don't want to wait for God to fulfill his promises on his terms, and so they take matters into their own hands and try to move God onto their timetable. This is a perpetual temptation, and it comes in many forms and can be seen in many different ways. The first uh, example that I thought of as I was thinking of a good example of this was the uh, Crusades that happened in the 11th century. The church at that time felt like it was their responsibility to make the Holy Land holy again. So armies were sent out to push out the Muslims out of, out of Israel and Jerusalem. <laughs> Clearly God would want this, they thought. Clearly his desire is that the earth would be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Shouldn't we claim every square inch for God's kingdom? We can make this happen. Send out the armies today. And yes, it is true that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. But no, never is okay to send out armies to make that happen. Jesus told his disciples to put away the sword. Synergism generally results in disaster. We can't force God into, into fulfilling his promises on our time, and we can't manipulate that either through our own power. Ishmael will receive a degree of blessing and protection but he will not carry on the promise. It's hard for us to trust God. It's even harder to wait for him to initiate and to carry out his plan. It's a very powerless spot for us to be, to wait on the Lord. The Israelites had to wait on the banks of the Red Sea. They had to wait for the Lord to push back the water. The disciples had to wait for three days as their Lord lay in the grave. They didn't want this outcome. They thought that if only Jesus would follow their program, that they'd have the world straightened out in no time. But Jesus would have nothing to do with their synergistic plans. He rather submitted himself fully and completely to the Father's plan. And it took him 
to the cross. The disciples saw the tomb in much the same way that Sarai saw her womb, not a place that could carry life anymore. But God, through his power, used that fertile space to birth a new beginning in his time. And of course, we're called to action, called to share and bear witness and use our resources to seek first the kingdom of God. But we need to remember that God's is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Our call is not to make things happen, but to wait faithfully in hope. The waiting is the hardest part. And at times we groan like Sarai groaned. Paul says that the whole creation has been groaning, groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. We groan, waiting for the day of redemption. Waiting in hope, groaning and anticipation. This is the primary posture of the Spirit-filled church. With the psalmist we confess, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And with the psalmist, we encourage one another, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord. His kingdom will come in his time. Secondly, we see in this story the faithfulness of God, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. God does not despise or make fun of or turn away from this dysfunctional family. Rather, he turns towards them in love. With one eye, he watches over the bearers of the promise, Abram and Sarai, and with the other, he watches over people like Hagar, the nations. This is a good reminder that God's concern for the world extend, extends beyond the walls of the church. He sees human beings. He has created everyone in his image. His eye is on the world. The role of the church is to be a blessing for the sake of the world, for the sake of outsiders. And when we see God's care, it extends beyond the church here. God seeing Hagar foreshadows the way that Christ saw the Samaritan woman at the well. Like Hagar, this woman was an outsider, non-Jewish, lots of husbands, lots of dysfunction. But Jesus sees her and invites her to come close, invites her into God's story. Drink the water I have to offer, he says. And some of you here today might feel a little like Hagar, passed over, passed around, mistreated, on the run, alone in the wilderness. God sees. He sees. And he has sent his messenger, Jesus Christ, to pursue you so that you can have hope, forgiveness, redemption, a family. Come to me, Jesus invites all weary travelers, and I will give you rest. Receive this invitation and let yourself be adopted into the family of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your pursuit 
of us. And we pray today, Lord, for those on the run, mistreated, perhaps there are children involved. Lord, we pray that you administer your grace, mercy, and justice in a world filled with lots of dysfunction. Lord, as your people, we ask for the courage to move forward in trust, not seizing the future or trying to create something that isn't, but waiting in hope and simply seeking to bear witness with the time you give us and the resources you give us. And Father God, we're thankful for your faithfulness, and that gives us great hope because we know that our households, our lives, are not always functioning as they should, but there are difficulties, and we are divided and pushed away from each other. We pray that you'd come to us to bring your healing and minister your grace, that we might experience the joy of life in your family. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.